0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pears Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. This is the show where we go beyond the recipe, listener, as you well know. And oftentimes, that means exploring things like history and different ingredients. But in today's edition, we're going to focus more on a different aspect of mixology something I don't think we properly covered before. That being the influence of drinks trends on cocktail-making techniques. The vehicle for this exploration is the caipirinha, a wonderful blend of cachaça, whole lime, and sugar, whose fortunes and favour are, I would argue, directly related to the popularity of muddled cocktails. There was a time when, just like the mojito, it seemed that this drink was everywhere. Now, not so much. I'm willing to bet there are tons of you out there that have either bought or received a cocktail set with all the equipment you need to make mixed drinks. And out of that set, the muddler probably remains brand new and unused. That's certainly the case for myself and anecdotally, I've noticed that muddling remains a woefully underutilized technique at bars today. A dying in art form, if you will. But you know what? We're here to bring it back. And we're doing so under the knowledgeable guidance of Gi Yaroshi. Gi is a Texan-born, Miami-based drinks pro, who's worked in all aspects of mixology, from making drinks behind the bar, to running bar programs. And consulting for brands and hospitality groups. Pull out the chopping board and knife, dust off that muddler, and get Sir George queued up on your preferred audio streaming service. Because this is the podcast that leaves the study of recipes alone a distant speck in the rearview mirror. And today, nos estamos haciendo caipirinhas. good i'm gonna say that again change we're here it's cocktail <laughs> college and we got gui yarushi joining us today to fala caipirinhas i'm not sure if that makes sense in portuguese but welcome man how's it going doing very well tim how are you doing I'm doing great, thank you. Um, unfortunately, and I, I do mention the weather a lot, but unfortunately, it is kind of rainy and gray again here in in, in New York. I guess the April showers have have seeped into May, but you know what? We're going to bring some sun into our life with with an incredible, a holy trinity of lime, cane spirit, and some some sweet sweetener in there too. How's that sound?
1: Sounds perfect to me, just about every day, but especially on this uh hot April Friday in Miami.
0: Hot hot Friday in Miami. Wow, yeah, definitely jealous right now. Um I think either way, you know, this this drink we we're going to discuss today, it is one like I say that really does kind of brighten up any occasion. How about for yourself though? What, what how do you feel about this drink in terms of like being a notable cocktail or or just you know cuz th- cuz there's others i guess you know that that formula that i outlined there in the in the beginning it's kind of like it's the classic tiki formula in a way there's others that maybe you think of first the daiquiri maybe a tea punch but how do you feel about the caipirinha
1: i just feel like again you like you said it builds on that on the most holy of sort of sour Uh, build strategies, but this one just feels that little bit more sort of uh, rustic beachy backyard kind of fun. Um, And so it's, again, it's just like super refreshing to drink. Uh, Unlike the Daiquiri, which I think, you know, feels to me like an indoor cocktail that you kind of drink quickly before it warms up. The Caipirinha, you get to kind of enjoy over time and let it develop in the glass and it works in a bar as well as it works at the beach or in a backyard or something like that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. This is not a cocktail that takes itself too seriously, and I don't think people are, you know, like we we mentioned in the daiquiri episode. I don't think bartenders are going around from bar to bar and being like, "Okay, let's see this guy's caipirinha specs." Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you just you you go you you order this
1: drink. You're just you know you have it for fun times. Right. Exactly. And it and it's it's one of these cocktails that, you know. Beyond just the sweet, sour, and booze balance, you get the—you need to balance the bitterness, you need to balance the dilution, and all—and all those things. So it's kind of like we really should be asking the bartender to, um, you know, for their caipirinha spec because you're balancing more than just the the alcohol level to the sweet and the sour. You're balancing some bitterness, some some you know actual raw ingredients that have different weights. So you have to be very intentional with this cocktail to get the best results.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's like. Kind of, I guess, how I I think of things maybe is uh, on the writing front, right? Like a really good article feels effortless. It feels like that the writer just wrote it, but actually there's a lot of editing that goes on behind the scene to make it good, like a good episode of a podcast as well. You know what I mean? And that's the thing with the caipirinha. It should seem effortless, but like you say, you need to pay attention to this. And we are going to dial into it today. Before we look at preparation, before we look at ingredients, What can you tell us, first of all, about, you know, this is a a Brazilian cocktail, but what can you tell us about maybe some of the known history of this drink?
1: Great. Well, uh, again, as a Caipirinha enthusiast, I was um, kind of embarrassed as I was preparing for this podcast to realize that I I didn't have a ton of background history in terms of where it originated, how long it had been being made. Uh, But I learned a lot that was pretty interesting. And again, like every cocktail, the background is somewhat murky. You know, people can lay claim to it and this and that, but essentially, uh, they trace it back to, uh, Spanish flu times when the cocktail was made with, uh, cachaça, uh, the muddled lime, honey, and a bit of garlic. Uh, And that was sort of the the proto-caipedinha, a little less refreshing and beachy, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but there's also some bit of that that says, you know, uh, they were drinking this sort of drink before the Spanish flu. And really, there, again, we can get into as much Brazilian and Portuguese history as we want to. But, you know, cachaça was sort of like the, um, the spirit of the enslaved or the spirit of sort of uh, lower means Brazilians that were, you know, uh, taking the sort of foam or sort of left out bits of, the sugarcane juice and distilling it to make a spirit that sort of helped them get through the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a great bit of pressure by the Portuguese to sort of, you know, to get rid of it. It's, well, for for a number of reasons, again, economic reasons and general control reasons and all those sort of ugly things that seem to come up uh, in the history of every spirit and especially in the, in the sugarcane growing world. Um, But yeah, so at that time, it was, you know, the Portuguese are really trying to push their wines and fortified wines. And cachaça was looked at as something that needed to kind of be gotten rid of. Um, And it was only later in those sort of in the 1800s that it was looked at um, as sort of a, what would you say? Like something to be celebrated. uh, Yeah, Exactly. Like sort of something, a proud differentiator of what
0: would soon be a free Brazil. Yeah, like a a national symbol right there.
1: Right, exactly, and and that's kind of when the caipirinha, as it's known now, starts to really show up. So the official recognition of caipirinha is 1918, mm-hmm. um, but we we can guess that it was sort of coming along and being made before that. And these again are just ingredients that
0: that go so well together so naturally it's interesting that we 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 do find these in, in kind of different parts of um in different parts of the world kind of popping up together they they do marry so well so naturally i found it very interesting there as well that you were mentioning um very very humble beginnings in a way for this uh, this drink and you know someone who's a former chef here i've often marveled at that in the culinary world, right? Like some of the best dishes, some of the dishes we celebrate the most are actually the ones that, Again, we're we're you know for want of a better word, maybe like peasant food in the beginning, but they're the ones that we love now. You see it so much in in French cuisine. I think even something like the bouillabaisse, right? Like this incredible soup, but originally came from basically okay, these are the fish that the fishermen couldn't sell at the market, or maybe they're you know thought of not thought of very well, and suddenly you're making this stew. But anyway, that's a that's a huge diversion
1: there. Um, well. And just, I mean, if I may, I think it's kind of like a a welcome diversion because especially, you know, this podcast is for, for people of all interest levels, bartenders, not bartenders. But I think, um, you know, when we, when we do training with bartenders, we really speak about the importance of sort of, um, how do you say, like really giving people an experience you're after and sort of selling what the experience is like so that you don't have to, you know, push a guest towards the most expensive, you know, spirit behind the back bar, if that's considered sort of upselling, what you're really upselling is like an experience. So if you took a guest and said, Oh, you know, when I get off work, what I like to do is shoot a rowdy shot of overproof rye. And that mm-hmm. just puts me in the right spot. And they can come along with you and say, Oh man, I'm, I'm into that. I'm, I'm ready for that experience. It's kind of what's, you know, now happening in things like Mescal, where 20, 25 years ago, that's kind of a, peasant spirit or something. It's something that's made out in the country. It's not really being, you know, consumed in high end spots. And it takes enough people saying like, oh, this is, this is, we're looking for these interesting flavors. Like, Hey, it has this taste because it was made like this and it can be consumed like this. And now all of a sudden that's a very like sought after ingredient that can, you know, fetch higher than some, you know, yeah multi-aged, multi-year aged tequilas, et cetera. So uh, there's no there's no selling short what a cool thing like um, bringing unique ingredients are and kind of like discovering what you like about them and, and sharing that with other people.
0: And you know, talk about mezcal there, right? So like, I mean, couldn't be more different than say, imagine on one hand you have like bottle service, right? Like $1,000 bottles of vodka or maybe tequila that maybe agave aficionados don't love and then the the kind of insiders are the the real aficionados you see these guys coming back from from Mexico with like you know plastic bottles with particular mezcals <laughs> with just like the name written on it in pen it, it's so funny that like those are the more coveted things and i think that really ties into what we're chatting about here um, also just you you speaking about like yeah that idea for for bartenders upselling experiences like ultimately guests they want to feel like insiders and they love that kind of thing.
1: Right, right. And I feel like right now, perspective or authenticity is sort of like the most in-demand uh, commodity there is. If you want to, I hate to use the word commodity for that, but you know what I'm saying? Like, People are looking for some, some, someone's perspective, whether it's through social media, through the many forms of you know, things that we consume. Um, it's, it's more valuable than ever in hospitality to kind of say like, hey, this is what I like or this is what I know about. And do you want to kind of come along for that experience
0: yeah absolutely and I think you know guys the, the the one of the one one of the best currencies out there are these little tidbits of knowledge that you can get and you can just share with people at a bar right and you know where you're like, you know actually that's not how they drink this in Italy or you know actually this is where this came from like it's a it is a really wonderful currency um but speaking about being at the bar and you know you yourself your are based there in Miami. Where does a Caipirinha fare just in terms of um, a, a drink that people order and kind of current day status and popularity? What's the what's what, what? How are things looking for the Caipirinha these days?
1: So that was, I think, something that really stood out to me most as I started thinking about the drink because um, you know I I'm I'm an old guy I I came up in bartending in the sort of like mid. 2000s, mm-hmm. um, and re- but really came into my into the cocktail world, and then sort of into my own in the in the beverage industry in like the you know 2010, 2009, whatever, and. They were wildly popular then because the whole fresh ingredient movement was really coming back. So it's mm-hmm. like you know if people were doing away with bottles of roses lime, starting to bring fresh produce in, making cocktails you know that tasted fresh. And then they'd be just muddling everything, muddling fruit, muddling whatever. And so the Caipadinha was like a perfect vessel for that. And and I feel like guests were really appreciative of this fact. Like oh my god, it's it's they've been drinking gimlets with like roses lime and gin, or they've been you know all, all those uh get you know, not so great drinks of the sort of nineties and eighties. And um and so the caipirinha had a huge moment there. There was there was a there was a hotel uh here in South Beach, the Mondrian when it opened that had an entire like the entire menu of the uh I forget what it's called, whatever, but the the main lobby bar was only caipirinhas and batidas. Wow. Um yeah and in, and it's kind of perfect because they're brightly colored, they're refreshing, they're you know, um fruity and fun. And so anyway you would you would think that that would mean it would still continue to progress with cocktails, but I feel like it's actually, you know, due to the way that cocktail bars kind of operate now, which is a combination of, you know, everybody wants it to be clean. Like, you know, I don't remember the last time I even had like a mojito with like the smashed up bits of mint in it. Like there was kind of this movement away from like muddling because now we're making these great cocktails and we have more like chefs behind the bar that make. Uh, you know, cool compound syrups in the back, and then as cocktail bars got more popular, volume—you know—the the volume demand has gone way up. So now everything needs to be like, you know, it needs to be three pickups, even in some of the nicest cocktail bars you go to in any city. Um, and so I feel like the Caipirinha has kind of suffered from that. Um, so I I opened uh, or was part of the opening team at Broken Shaker here in Miami in 2012, and we used to change our menu every two weeks, and then it moved to three weeks as I I became the bar manager and a little bit lazier. Um, (laughs) Late lazier. Changed the entire menu every three weeks. Um, but So we had seven or eight cocktails, and one was always a caipirinha. And so we got to make a ton of really fun and sort of creative twists on it. Um, you know, you, you ultimately have to have that sort of muddled lime component for me to really think of it as a caipedinha. You, can't, It's just pouring, you know, lime syrup of some sort and cachaça and shaking and straining over fresh ice. Now it feels more like it's, uh, I don't know, bastardization, if we can say that uh, Yeah. on the podcast. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I, I'm getting off course again but um actively encouraged on this podcast okay perfect good good we like rambling um but yeah to answer your question directly i feel like it's fallen a little bit out of favor with modern drinkers i would think almost purely because of the way that the bars that would be making them like cocktail bars uh operate these days um and like you know luckily in cities like miami and i would presume new york there's a large enough um Brazilian population that sort of keeps the drink afloat. There's there's a place called Boteco down the street from my house, and they just churn out Caipirinhas nice. um, all day, every day. That's
0: Yeah, I think that's great, and I think it's, it's a great point you make there. Um, I obviously have a kind of slightly different perspective of – Uh, how things evolved having spent those years in the UK but I definitely remember um, say it was around 2014 and we had you know the World Cup about to happen in Brazil in Rio Um, no the Olympics in Rio sorry and the World Cup and there was just this real Brazilian kind of fever there happening, for want of a better word, in the UK, you know, the, you know you couldn't watch BBC without there being a program about Rio or Brazilian life and things like that. It was really wonderful. And I remember the Caipirinha sort of having a moment there, but also like, to your point too, also almost being a little passe by that point, I think kind of went a little bit the way of the Mojito too. I think, you know, you mentioned that drink and I think there's, there's a lot of similarities there just in terms of maybe the, the status of those two drinks, um you mentioned something that we we'll, we may cover again and I think it's important to maybe explain for folks that aren't familiar with this term but you spoke about batida drinks can you can you tell us what those are and um and how that relates to this cocktail
1: Right well so that's the kind of second most popular i guess style of of cocktail uh in Brazil and essentially that's going to take cachaça generally a, a citrus or a little bit of an acid component um sweetener fruit and, and then either like a coconut cream or a condensed milk. So it's going to be kind of like, and generally those are more like swizzled or sort of like made in glass with crushed ice. Um, and they can range in, you know, all different styles of uh, fruit flavors. And again, you can switch between that sort of like condensed milk or the coconut, but they are a delicious, but decidedly sort of like uh richer, you know, more sort of like fruit forward cocktail than the caipirinha.
0: That's awesome. Um, and and the Caiapina itself, you you mentioned at the top that you know maybe this is something that, that requires more thought than is perhaps um, just just apparent from the from the get go there or, or, or that you might experience. What is it that you're looking for from this cocktail? Is there one ingredient that should be more prominent than others? Should it be kind of homogenous or, or or perfectly um, you know married together in one flavor? What's what? What's this drink look like to you, and a kind of uh, flavor and, and textural front?
1: Well, um, that is that's where the Caipirinha really shines, I think, even over some others. So, again, for me, any cocktail in those sort of in the straight sour family, when they're made well, you have a really great sort of harmony between the ingredients, but you can also make out distinct pieces of each. Um and so but the with the caipirinha, you add texture, which is is really fun. I mean, and texture at a not just sort of like in a typical shake and drink texture. I'm talking about you're chewing lime pulp, uh, you're blocking bits of lime, you know, husk from going into your mouth. So it's a little bit more of an experiential drink. But getting back to your question, what I'm what I'm looking for there, um again, you have the the tartness of the lime juice married with sort of with the with sweetness of sugar and you can use brown sugar or white sugar i'm sure we'll kind of touch on that but i you know i see recipes with sugar cubes i personally prefer granulated sugar just because you can you know get that nice and worked into the cocktail without destroying the limes. Um, and you, and then again, you just, it's a little bit more compact than say simple syrup where you're already adding some water to the cocktail. Um, you know, a nice granulated sugar muddled with the limes gives you, uh, not only a sort of punchy sweetness and sourness, but also gives you that other little bit of, you know, if done just right, you should have just a tiny bit of gritty texture from that sugar that's still in there. Maybe you could just kind of crunch between your front teeth as you're drinking it, Mm -hmm. uh, at least in the early going. And then. The cachaça is such an interesting spirit, um, and again, I think we'll probably need to get into a little bit more into cachaça and a separate question. But um, you know, it's at, at one at points has some tropical fruit notes. It has some sort of grassy notes. It has you know, with certain cachaças are a little bit higher proof, so you have definitely a, a punchiness of alcohol. Um, but if you, to me, when you get it just right, it tastes like this sort of sweet, limey, almost like a you know, a grape without the skin is sometimes the flavor I think of when I'm drinking cachaça. Um, and, and, and then on top of that, the drink continues to develop as it sits in the glass. So that first sip is going to be, you know, pronounced cachaça. And that's another thing. If you look through recipes, you know, I think the IBA recipe says one and three quarter ounces standard sort of bars, more like two. I think most Brazilians would say it's like two and change. And then you even have like Gaz Regan recipes and stuff that call for a full three ounces, which isn't like uh, (laughs) nice. I'm (laughs) I'm in that school. Yeah, exactly. Well, you're both, both English. So that makes sense. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so anyway, I'm, I'm going a solid two with maybe a little overflow and I, I, my, my favorite cachaça for something like that is like a they have a Nova Fogo bar strength at 43% alcohol i think it sort of bridges bridges the right gaps there
0: and let's yeah let's do that dive into cachaça now because I think this is one of those ingredients where you know it's not like a it's not like a tequila or even a gin where I think you know everyone will listening will be completely familiar with its maybe its production and flavor profile so can you can you start by telling us how this spirit is made and then also yeah then we'll do a little let, let's chat also about if folks haven't had it before, what they should be looking for when they're buying a bottle, like, you know, ABVs, things like that. But yeah, how? first of all, how is cachaça made?
1: So cachaça is made from uh, sugar cane juice, so you know some people will call cachaça brazilian rum uh or they compare it to rum agricole and it is distinct as its own you know not only because of governing bodies uh, that say it's distinct it's pretty distinct in in a lot of ways it's made so one it has to be made entirely from brazilian sugarcane. so that's that's one um two it's made from the juice of that sugarcane. so as if for those that don't know you know I would say a, a large percentage of rum is made from molasses, the byproduct of making um refined sugar, uh, that's fermented and, and distilled. Um, in this case, they are using the the fresh pressed juice of the sugar cane fermenting that. Um, and they will distill it in pot stills just once. Um, and you know, that that is pretty unique because so it's it's sort of cousin would be rum agricole that also uses um. Uh, sugarcane juice, which so both both have that sort of like grassy, vegetal, tropical fruit flavors, especially in the unaged versions. Um, but this one with the single distillation and um, the, I, within that single distillation, I was looking for a 100% solid answer on this because some some sources say it can be up to 48% and others say it can be up to 54%. But either way, the, the, the key factor to know about that or to take away from that is that that's a very low distillation ABV. Um, and so, you know, when you're distilling a spirit, the higher percentage of alcohol you get it to, the more you kind of strip away its original flavors. So like when you think of a vodka, that has to be distilled to over 96% alcoholic purity. So pretty much you're removing all the flavors of the initial materials. Um, in cachaça, when you're talking about 48 to 54%, um that's that's maybe even the lowest i've heard yeah. <laughs> in distilled spirits um so you really maintain a lot of that sort of original cane flavor in there nice um yeah and um and so so then they'll either be served entirely young or they'll be rested if if you're talking about a um uh, a silver cachaça or they call it prata which is the portuguese and Tim uh maybe your Portuguese pronunciation is better than me you can give it a shot and prata, <laughs>
0: prata. pracha yeah. maybe
1: pracha yeah i love i mean i love hearing uh you know brazilian portuguese spoken cuz it's such a it's like a it's like a singing language there's so much cool inflection and it really like moves in a lot of ways like our, i especially my uh delivery is pretty straightforward it kind of stays on a on a one line and I, when i listen to uh, Brazilian Portuguese speakers talk, I get kind of jealous because they go through like a whole range of emotions in just about every sentence. Like, it's a, yeah, da, it's, da, 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 da. it's,
0: it's a real wonderful language. And it, it, it's interesting too, because yeah, you know, that, that a couple years that I spent in Argentina, um, definitely we, you know, had a good, a good, good amount of Brazilian sort of that I came into contact with too. And I think sometimes there were words and certain things I could pick up, but on the other hand, hearing people from Portugal speak Portuguese, I can't, I can't get a word it's 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 very difficult um it's interesting but yeah that's, that's why i tend towards the argentine spanish too i think it's better than the better than the classic but anyway we do digress <laughs> there. More flourish um yeah. but yes yeah, so so the the aged and unaged um versions we have the, the 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 pratar pracha i'm not sure someone can correct us here but um that would be the unaged silver version of this this uh, spirit
1: Right, and th- that would, like I said, either go unaged completely or rested in stainless steel, where you're not really imparting any flavor, but you're letting it uh, mellow out just a little bit. Um, and then you would get into the um, the the aged mm-hmm. uh, or envelicida. Again, uh, my pronunciation is not great. I'm not going to uh, even attempt the, the fun, that one. The fun part. What's that? Sorry. Tim. I said,
0: I'm not even going to attempt that one myself. <laughs>
1: uh, but yeah, but the fun thing about the aged cachaças is, is that, you know, Brazil has obviously, you know, in different parts of Brazil sit along the the rainforest and you have some some wood sources that you really don't find anywhere else. Uh, and so, and they're actually encouraged to use those sort of native woods versus, you know, the French or American oak that so many spirits around the world are aged in. And these casks made from this wood impart flavors that you just, don't experience in other spirits, so they they can usually very like sort of spicy and you know kind of exotic is what I would use, but those sort of like vanilla, cinnamon, clove flavors are really pronounced. Yeah, and because they don't char the barrels, you get a lot of that flavor, and it's very woody and again sort of spicy uh, form pretty quickly. So they're not aged for years and years, I think, you know, maybe the, the, the longest age cachaças you'll see are anywhere between two and four years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think Brazil's climate has something to do with that as well. You know, when you have a hot, um, and moist climate, your aging can come down a little bit.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're losing a lot of spirit there to the, to the angels. So (laughs) yeah, you don't want to give up too much. Um, that's wonderful. Yeah, I think I found that fascinating too, just about the, the different types of wood, because I think this is the one category where you're guaranteed to find that more than any other. I know it is kind of seeping into some, some other aspects of spirits these days, but um, yeah, nowhere near as much. Um, what about then so you, you mentioned the distillation proof there, but what about when we see it in bottles? Is this is this a category kind of like tequila where we'll almost see everything on the nose of around forty forty percent ABV, or is it a bit more like a gin where where you're seeing things that just kind of um all over the place on the on the proof there?
1: And that kind of really goes to a little bit of more you know, there's sort of a little bit more industrial or sort of large production cachassas, and and those are going to usually sit around 40% ABV. Uh, and then now you're seeing a, a big in in um, now you're seeing a big increase in the slightly more uh, crafty styles of cachaça or smaller production cachassas, and those do have a pretty big range, anywhere from you know 42 to 46. Nice.
0: And is that I mean, I, I I hate to kind of ever be reductive about things, but is that maybe one of those surefire surefire signifiers that if if someone's looking, if someone's exploring, maybe their local store and they have a good selection of spirits there, and you see that cachaça may maybe an interesting proof that maybe this is going to be smaller production or there's there's a lot there's there's a lot of care going into it. I don't want to say more care, but there's a lot of care going into it.
1: Right, and I mean, you never know. Obviously, you know if if due to this podcast cachaça has a, just an explosion in popularity in the US uh, <laughs> you you may see some of these like uh you know giant corporations trying to put out 43% alcohol cachaça just to you know and get the, tims seal <laughs> <ceiling> of approval
0: <laughs> hey man if we if we're able to do it that's good i'm 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 happy to help do the work here
1: yeah but no in general definitely you you know, we you know the brands, you know, but when I was a kid, I remember seeing this bottle, the Pitu uh cachasa. That was like the one with in the woven matte bottle. I can't even remember what it looks like anymore because it's kinda taken a back seat. And obviously there's the Liblon, which is kind of the the big brand um mm-hmm. that that everyone in the US knows. And um, but yeah, the the no- Fogos and the um Avoir are kind of two brands that you will see in retail and in bars that definitely are, you know. Starting a conversation about the what what cachaca yeah. is and can be in Brazil, uh, and there's you know a ton of other brands that, but I, I think those are the two that people can kind of expect to see on back bars or in a, a decent liquor store, and where they could experiment with a little bit, um, yeah, production cachaca. Yeah, I
0: think definitely uh, Nova Fogo, I think has done a a lot of good work in terms of making inroads in the bartending community. And I believe I may be wrong here, but I believe they're also doing good stuff, doing the doing good stuff when it comes to more kind of like sustainability and things over there, especially with, you know, obviously you mentioned the rainforest and that's a that's a huge issue right now there in that country. So um, it's always good to see brands giving back.
1: Yeah, it really is.
0: Um, second component here for this drink, let's go to the, let's go to the lime. Um, what are we, actually, you know what, I think this would be a good moment for us to talk about how you're actually preparing this drink, because I think that the, the the lime and the sweetening agent that we're going to talk about too, I think those are, it, it's really good for us to have an idea of how we're making it at the same time, because um, yeah, I think this is a cocktail that's maybe a little bit more involved than some of the other ones that we've discussed previously on this show.
1: Right. Well, so again, for me, you're looking at cutting your limes into eight pieces usually. So let's start with the limes, right? And then we'll get into the glass and stuff. Mm-hmm. So Persian limes are pretty much the standard in the United States, uh, and and something similar to that is is pretty much the the current standard in Brazil. Again, the more you get into the history, mm-hmm. you can get into all the cultivars of limes they were having at that time. But let's let's we're talking about right now and can um, i can i hold
0: you for a quick second just in this you know okay this is this maybe doesn't age brilliantly but i'm just wondering like if you don't mind sh- sharing what you're you're paying for limes these days because this is a topic i know that continues to be difficult i was speaking with a bartender last night they told me here in new york they're paying 150 a case right now which is just wild
1: yeah it's uh it's it's varying quite a bit but i think in in miami right now you're looking at like uh 110 120 a case which is um uh, I, th- I think a case is uh, 175 count or something like that. Yeah. And if you're talking about going to a grocery store, the last time I bought some in making some caipadinias in preparation for this conversation, uh, they were 79 cents each, which I begin as I get older, I realize that it's not such an impactful statement to say, I can remember when you yeah. had 10, li- 10 limes for a dollar.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Cause I
1: can also remember when gas like dipped below a dollar at one point in my life. So that's uh, <laughs> yeah. not as convincing as when I was like 25 years old, but, um, yeah, so it, they're definitely expensive and, you know, as with everything, it seems like moving them around, getting them here, your su- supply chain, if you will, is, uh, is really affecting the price. But, um... Yeah, yeah I, I think that 79 cents a lime is still worth the investment for a good caipirinha.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So back into it, you're cutting that lime into, so one single lime, you're cutting that into eight pieces, you're saying?
1: Cutting it to eight pieces. Uh, I take just the, the, just the end ends off to reduce a tiny bit of uh, lime skin that's going to go into it. I personally, I have to muddle my caipirinha in the glass. So I'm going to, so, and again... If you did eight pieces in the glass, now this is obviously lime sizes change and vary and juiciness of them. I'm I'm like the kind of annoying person in the grocery store that's going lime by lime. To pick <laughs> my limes. I, I want a smooth skinned lime that kind of is a little give, gives to the to the squeeze a little bit. You know, I want it to, I want it to feel juicy in there, and I, I don't want a really thick white pith between the the skin and the the lime meat. So I, I take my time in selecting my limes. Um, and generally, in, for my recipe, like the recipe that I teach people, the recipe that I make for myself, I use six of those eight pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, um, there are people that have the recipe with, like, all eight and a little more sugar and three ounces of cachaça. So, obviously, every cocktail is about balance. But I I think that the American drinker is about mentally prepared for two ounces of, of the, hard, the hard stuff in yeah. a cocktail. You know what I mean? And yeah. th- there's obviously many stirred up drinks that go way above that but in general in a, in a mixed cocktail we're looking at about two ounces of space spirit so um anyway so six lime eighths six lime chunks mm-hmm. um and then my ratio on there is three teaspoons or a tablespoon of granulated sugar um tablespoon is an easy measurement that most everybody has and it happens to work out pretty well for me that's like just again it's it's sweet enough Um, and Miami is known for having a sweeter palate, but I think that in this cocktail, that's not on the sweeter side. That's like right, right there where you want it to be.
0: Right down Um, the middle.
1: Right. And that's another, I think, difference between the caipedonia and something like a daiquiri. Like I know a lot of people that drink daiquiris really dry. Um, and, if you drank a really dry caipirinha, I feel like you're missing out on some of the harmonies of the flavors there. You know what I mean? You're like, you're not yeah. proving anything to anyone with just having a glass of muddled limes and cachaça.
0: I'm right there um, with you on that one. And, and on, the, on the daiquiri too, you know, I, I want the sweetness component of it. I, I Yeah, maybe I have a sweeter tooth as well.
1: Right. I mean, I think there's, there you know, there's all kinds of little things built into the way that people drink their drinks and everybody wants to kind of show that they uh, know or that, you know, I don't like this or that. And again, some people legitimately don't like a, a sweet cocktail and I don't either, but there's, there is a, a sense of balance is sometimes miss if you're doing a sour with an ounce of lime juice and a, you know, a half ounce or quarter ounce of sweetener. Yeah. Um, you know, I still, I think you're drinking an off balance drink and that is your prerogative. You're welcome to do it, but don't, don't tell me <laughs> that's not the standard it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the
0: granulated sugar you're using white sugar, not maybe kind of like a, a brown or maybe a demerara. I find it interesting that a lot of a lot of the cocktails we've discussed previously, people have gone towards that kind of rich demerara syrup. But I feel like that's maybe more with aged spirits than than um, than unaged spirits.
1: Right, and and both work here really well. And and I will say that um, at you know. At Boteco, they use uh, white sugar. Boteco is like my my uh, barometer for what sort of like modern Brazilians are drinking. I, I don't know, but but <laughs> if you if you deep dive into the cocktail and look around in Brazil, there, there's still I would say a pretty good split on sort of like more like a light brown sugar, like a sugar in the raw. And part of that reasoning, when I if, if you if I when I've asked around, is that they like those sort of. Uh, sturdier crystals for, for a, being abrasive on the lime peel and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and and again, it's just, a, it is a really nice flavor, that tiny little bit of molasses and richness that it adds. Um, so you will see both being served in Brazil for sure. I just, if my spec, I use a, a granulated white sugar just because I, I, I like the the cleanness. I really just brightens up the lime and brightens up the cachaca for me. Um, and so you're going to, you're going to, Try and get that nicely mixed between the lime meat and the lime peel, and then you're going to muddle in a way that's you're not you know you're not just smashing down and splashing the juice out. You're kind of getting you're you're selecting where your muddler's going, kind of on the corner of a wedge to press down, express the juice, and get a little twist so that you're kind of getting those oils out without just demolishing the lime. And you know I kind of know when I'm done muddling because you have some. Uh, it, it kind of has become one thing. Like the sugar is just a little bit past a paste; it's almost into a syrup. There's still a little bit of sugar that's that's you know on the edges of the glass, floating around for those little uh, crunchies I'm looking for later. And then the limes have been you know fully expressed of juice, and and that's when you're you're ready to add your ice and cachaça.
0: Amazing. And uh, before we do continue with this drink, just hearing you talk about that makes me feel like you know muddling. Is this becoming a bit of a lost art form in bartending? Just because, again, those drinks that we've mentioned maybe aren't as popular today as they once was, but that as they once were. But hearing you speak about that intention when it comes to the muddling, I don't think I've ever heard anyone speaking about that before.
1: Well, it, it, I I say it is a pretty lost art. Uh, again, more in more in cocktail bars, and it's funny because, um, like I said, the when I was coming up in bartending, and and the mojito was popular before I was coming up in bartending, but that was kind of like the drink that was kind of the pain in the ass for yep. people to make before craft cocktail bars were really very popular, and um, you know it was like oh mojito, these guys are ordering rounds of mojitos, oh my god, and, but you at that at that point you still muddled them and whatever, and um, I so I don't know where it was, but recent, but then of course like everybody just went into cocktails that all took five or six steps and you were muddling a lot of things or you were, you know, reaching for bottles from the back bar that you didn't used to really have to get and stuff. Uh, and we've kind of come full circle again because I w- we were training some, uh, younger bartenders and the, I don't know, they were talking about like mojitos and being a pain in the ass because you have to like, you know, we like we we teach a churned mojito. So like actually kind of semi building it in glass with the ice and giving it a good like it's short of a swizzle, but it's, uh you know, whatever. Anyway, point being, they were like, oh, what a pain in the ass, because they're so used to everything sort of being made back of house and all this sort of prep being done in advance and yeah. having stations that weren't just sort of put together from, you know, y- closed down restaurants, old barware that the owner would kind of buy, you know, when we were coming up in cocktail bars, we just buy from like restaurant auctions yep. and you'd have like this fully uh, mismatched uh, bar equipment. And now they have a, you know, Perlick station that has like the cockpit fully built in a 10 or Everything is much more uh, quick and streamlined, which is great, but it's just funny to see a bartender that can make you, you know, ha- has a book of 200 cocktails in their brain, but thinks it's kind of a pain in the ass to make a mojito. <laughs> No, I love it. I think, you know,
0: bringing back this, this lost art form, and I, I wonder too whether, you know, this this reaction to this espresso martini craze, I don't know how long this is going to continue for, but, you know, the espresso martini craze, maybe the reaction, maybe the next wave of cocktails is this return to this style of drink because, and uh, no pun intended here, but it's refreshing to be muddling a drink <laughs> rather than, you know, shaking up 50 espresso martinis a go. I don't know, maybe. We'll see.
1: I mean, I'm. I, I think we're we're ten years out from being everybody muddling everything in a tin again. Because <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> you're laying it down there on record today. I like it.
1: Yeah. Well, look. It just this is the cycle that things kind of go through, and they'll have to rediscover the the beauty of like fresh produce and how to work with it and stuff. Because we, you know, first it was the sort of the culinary, and now I see there's this sort of science, right? So yep. like every you in, in Europe, you're seeing so much of the sort of rotavap, and you have this cocktail that has you know, 15, 20 ingredients, but it comes to you as a beautiful, completely, you know, see, see through, is that opaque? What's the word there? Clarified. Yeah. Clarified, whatever. I can't remember if opaque means you can't see through it or you can, but it's it's, 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 it's the middle one. You can semi see through it. Okay. Well, anyway, you can completely see through these, but they'll have a nice pink hue and they're on a clear cube and they're in a tall glass. Anyway. Um, and then now we have products. So like, you know, my partner and I are working with a, with a group to make a, a product called Sour AF, which is like a, uh, an acid blend for, you know, cocktail bartenders and home bartenders. And the application is like, well, there's volume and batching, extending lime juice now that limes cost 150 bucks yep. a case. Uh, or in some cases, like people that might want to experiment with sort of fun, clarified cocktails, but don't have those tools in their bar. They use it. Anyway, the point is when that, when those type of things take over a generation of bartenders just behind that will be like, what's this line? What is that? Like, like I went to a bartender video I was like, Hey, do you have a hand press? He's like a hand press is like, you know, like an elbow. <laughs> got, I'm like the the freaking little thing that squeezes a fresh lime. Like it, it was, <laughs> I just want to press the juice of half a lime out. Uh, so they will discover these things and be like, "Oh my god, it's so great!" And they won't wear suspenders and mustaches. They'll wear kind of like '90s uh, color block gear and like remodeling limes and stuff. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's 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 wonderful, isn't it? It's fascinating these these tides of fashion and how everything comes back. Speaking of coming back, I think I should. Um, I, I've taken us too far off. Let's bring us back to the drink. You have, you, you have this wonderful paste formed in the glass. I'm looking at it right now in my mind, and I'm going, what's happening next?
1: Mm, okay, we're adding ice. Um,
0: so the is cachaça, the in there too?
1: No. I am I like to add my ice only because if I add the cachaça and then I dump the ice, you got some splashing, you might have some issues. So I add the ice mm-hmm. uh, on top to kind of hold things where, where they may be. Nice um, intention. And, and this is all happening in a, I would say, an old-fashioned glass, like you know, in that 10 to 12-ounce range short. Um, And then, yeah, so ice, ice is, is another thing that people argue about. So my, my good friend Josue is really big on uh, shaking this with a little bit of like cold draft or cube ice and then topping it with a bunch of crushed, which looks great, but it's, I, I don't know. I, I like the uh, where I'll go where I'm going with it and tell you why I like it. So I I am going to be using just, Decent ice now, because it reminds me of these like beach caipirinhas. If I could get like really solid bag ice, like you're getting at home, like uh, like the you know the ready ice kind of like uh, rounded ones with a little hole in the middle. Yeah, it's solid ice though, not not slushy crappy ice. But that that would be ideal. But we'll also we can go for, you know, we'll take cold draft hoshizaki one and a quarter inch cubes. But basically. Cube ice is what's important. It doesn't even need to be of the same quality that we're using in great cocktail bars, the one and a quarter inch cube or something, but just a solid cube ice. Um, and you can, you can fill the glass up with that. And then you're going to pour in your two ounces of cachaça. And again, in this case, I'm looking at an unaged cachaça, ideally with a bit of flavor to it. I said my, my, this is no plug for them, but I'm a big fan of the Nova Fogo bar strength just because it has that little extra punch. Nice. Um, And then here's my, here's my thing that I like to do. So I like to take that Collins glass and grab the small tin. So if you're talking about a two piece, uh, tin on, you know, metal on metal tin shaker, I like to take the small tin that you normally build in and cover the top of the rocks glass uh, and give it a little shake with now the rocks glass kind of f- facing out behind you. So that it's kind of closing, sealing the tin ooh. and you're going to want to, Ooh. Yeah. Um, again, might be breaking some rules. Hey man, make the rules. I'm, I'm here to break the rules because I'm going to get the result that I'm after is like, I don't want, I want to chill it really well. I want to incorporate it really well. I want to add a little bit of air, but not much. So I don't want like a a, a big room for it to kind of shake around and and get aerated, which you know you do want in a lot of cocktails. Um, and yeah, and I don't want to even really give it that much dilution. This is really mostly about incorporation and like incorporating and chilling. Um, again, trying to get any of those little pockets of sugar that might have gone un uh, muddled or sort of dissolved. And then I'm gonna just dirty dump the whole thing back into that same rock's glass. And then if you need if you have if you've created a little bit of room, you'd add maybe one or two more ice cubes to give you a nice wash line. You know, you don't need a ton of space there. You want it to be kind of coming up to the top of the glass, and you want to leave in the chunks of lime because part of the experience, it's twofold. Said so one, it is gonna change over time and the lime is gonna kind of keep producing the nice like tartness uh, and bitterness as the drink rolls on and as dilution. Again, I I can only imagine caipirinhas in a sort of a warm climate. I I know they're being drank all around the world, but all of my caipirinha experience is on a beach or, you know, around a pool or in a hotel that's, you know, uh, covering you from 90 degree heat outside. So (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, but yeah, so as that ice melts, you're going to keep getting some interaction from the lime. And two, as just a guy who spends time out drinking, and it's a very social activity for me. There's just something really fun about every once in a while getting a nice little you know lime uh, lime pulp surprise, and you kind of get it to have a little nibble of lime as you drink, and it pops, and you get that flavor. It's just uh, it's a it's it's a magical experience. And
0: what about those two final? Have I have I missed this? But what about those two final pieces of the eight
1: limes? So they are reserved for, you basically have to drink three caipirinhas to get, um, an equal amount of lime. Okay. I'm in, I'm sold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're just, they will reserve them for another use. That's cool. That's I like it. And you know
0: what I love? Uh, you mentioned your technique. There may be a little bit unconventional. Those are always the, the examples that I enjoy most on this show when people come with their own technique. And, and, and like I said, a ton of times intention rather than just, you know, the maybe the the IBA method or the the, the textbook method, but like having a reason and doing it yourself. And also that kind of I, I want to be at a bar where I see someone shaking uh, a, a rocks glass inside, essentially, you know, the Boston tin there. That's that's wonderful. I, if I'm sat at the bar and I see that happening, I'm going, this is wild. It's unconventional. I'm all in. I love it.
1: Right. Well, you have to look like you know what you're doing, or you're doing it on purpose for it to work.
0: <laughs> I don't want to be there that someone's doing it for the first time ever. You're because
1: right. <laughs> And you don't want to be, if they put it in the big tin, then you're just looking at broken glass. In no so you want, you want that, that short shake to keep any, any bad things from happening.
0: That's awesome. Um, what about garnish there? And also, is this a straw drink or is this not a straw drink? I'm worried about the pulp.
1: Yes. So no, no straws, no garnish. No straws, um, no and, garnish. And, and there's, so that's one of those things that I feel like there is some debate amongst bartenders and even guests like, you know, do you garnish a, a daiquiri? That, that other very simple sour and, you know, it's hard for me not to want to put a lime wheel on it, but there's plenty of bartenders say like no daiquiri. I mean, no garnish on a daiquiri, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't know a single bartender that garnishes a classic caipirinha with anything other than just, you know, a napkin to give it to you. Um, People who aren't thinking might put straws in it, but again, I don't see where the straw re- – I mean, I could see how the straw could be prescribed because I guess you can get some of those nice little bits off the bottom of the glass that way sooner and stuff like that. But for me, yeah, it, you know, straw on request only.
0: Yeah. Good for the yeah. environment too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm like that way in general. And um, if I wore lipstick or something, I might feel more, you know, sympathetic to it or something. But in general, yeah, especially there, yeah, short drinks in my mind need no straws. But again, I some people would disagree. Awesome. Um, so I I think we've covered
0: all of the all of the typical aspects of the drink that we would the glassware, the build, the garnish, no garnish, folks. Um, Guy, any final thoughts here on the on the caipirinha on this cocktail or or, or anything that we've already just covered today or haven't?
1: Well, I, I was gonna say we would be remiss to not discuss the fruit caipirinha. I mean we kinda touched on it. Yes. But it's uh it's a major part of Brazilian drinking culture and I think that almost anywhere where they're serving a lot of caipirinhas, they are, you know, muddling with fruit or using liqueurs and stuff like that. Um and so yeah, I, I guess I, I wanted to sort of mention that that one you really can't go wrong throwing the fruit of your choice in there I mean the, the most popular are strawberry passion fruit um what's I've seen everything but pineapple or is anyone doing pineapple? pineapple yes oh how could I forget pineapple yes definitely mm-hmm. pineapple um and so you know my favorite of those is uh one that that made with uh, chinola passion fruit liqueur nice Have, you, yeah it's, uh, I'm a, it's uh, I just
0: tried it for the first time recently, and I'm a fan. it's delicious
1: right so it's a it's a passion fruit liqueur made in Dominican republic from it's it's sort of an old world style liqueur if you will so they actually use the the passion fruit pulp so it's not clear whatever that word is it's uh <laughs> it's not opaque you can't see through it and and so I make I I've, I now I might again I might be the only person putting caipirinhas on menus, but we we got a chance to do the menu for the timeout market in Miami, and we were doing like um, uh, the cachaça, chinola, passion fruit liqueur, um, sort of like a, a key lime and vanilla sort of thing, where you basically mix the uh, what is that thing called uh, oleosacrum? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, using some chunks of key lime and vanilla and the sugar. So I in that case I had to break a cardinal rule of my like classic caipirinha where we did use the syrup, yep. but then they started model it on, on fresh limes again. But again, this, you have to, some exceptions need to be made to um, have a cocktail that people can make quickly and get out to guests. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's, that, I think that's a, that's a great point. And you know, the rules are, the rules are guidelines, aren't they really? Essentially, you know, there's, if there's a reason to to break them or stray from the path, let's do it. And I think that's a great point though, just that like, this cocktail being that, um, kind of template, but also you can build upon it with those other fruit. Maybe you're, maybe you got a couple of raspberries. I don't know, just, you need to use up or whatever, just, you know, get, get it in the caipirinha, add a little bit of, uh, add a little bit of fruit to it. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing. So, um, Let's, uh, let's, let's now head into the, uh, the, the final part of the show here, Guy, and let's uh, get to know you yourself more as a, as a drinker and as a bartender. Cool. That sounds fun. Awesome. Kicking it off as is custom with question number one, um, what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back
1: bar? So right now, uh, I feel like agave spirits are having a major moment. um, And they, you know, like many categories, um, you really, really kind of taste with certain brands, like, uh, like place and process. And so, yeah, we're, we're having a lot of fun with agave spirits again. Um, you know, my two favorite categories are kind of rum and scotch. And I, I feel like I've heard that from a few people on the podcast before. But I, I find that consumers are a little less open to some exploration in, in those categories, whereas they're very open to trying great agave spirits right now. So on, in, in our bars, uh, you'll see a, a, a wide range of agave from both sort of mainstream to the more esoteric. Nice. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mentioned the espresso
0: martini earlier, but I think tequila too is just this, it's, it, it, those are the two things that, you know, even if I'm speaking with folks that maybe aren't so concerned with the bar industry or, or, or aren't taken by kind of the, the cocktail world, those are two things that everyone seems to be talking about these days. So I think that's smart. And, um, also speaks to different markets too, I guess. Um, yeah,
1: well and then uh, if I was in Mexico we did a consulting project in Mexico not long ago and the carajillo, which is essentially the uh, you know tequila and liqueur 43 uh, espresso martini is having a major moment like it, it's the most called for drink i think of any i've ever seen like having seen the moscow mule the mojito the old Fashioned have like these incredible moments i was like never seen half of a bar have a, a carajillo, you know or have wow. a cocktail has yeah, nuts that's wild uh, I need to look into
0: that one. Maybe write that trend piece. Um, <laughs> question number two: Which ingredient or tool is the most undervalued, in your opinion, in a bartender's arsenal?
1: Hmm. Um, I you know, I guess it sort of depends, right? But in ingredient wise, I think that uh, the fortified wine segment is is least utilized in, in a in a great way. You know, there's always like one or two that are really popular amongst bartenders because, you know, probably the brands have some marketing effort or that, you know, when people first try Carpano and they've only had, a you know, a one, one of the other big ones that might mm-hmm. not have quite as much character or sweetness or whatever. Um, you know, they really get into one of those, but just in general, you know, I've always been a fan of making, you know, cobbler style cocktails or, or making, you know, riffs Manhattan is my favorite cocktail. So riffs on Manhattan's with different fortified wines and stuff like that. Um, I feel like most current bartenders, um, just don't have a huge breadth of knowledge of those, of those, uh, fortified wines. And and there, there's just so many of them out there and there's so many cool things you can do with them, but I just see a a very small handful used at any given time.
0: The safe ones. And if we were going to say tool, I'm guessing you're going muddler. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not the most <laughs> valuable right now. but <laughs> no. uh, <laughs>
0: Undervalued 10 years' time, folks. Buy stocks in muddlers now, and 10 yeah. years' time, you're going to be raking it in. Yep, for <laughs> sure. Question number three here. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry?
1: Well, um, that's another good question. I think one that stands out a lot is, um, I, so many years ago, I did the consulting project for Steven Starr and he is very surprisingly hands-on with his openings and projects. Maybe that was because it was one of his first big ones in Miami. And, uh, he wanted to know kind of like what we were doing with our classics. Cause he really liked the, the cocktail menu that we made, but he wanted to know like what we were doing with the, you know, our, what was our sort of book for the classic cocktails and people ordered them. And so he wanted to try, our martini spec. And, you know, again, this is, uh, this is like 2015. So I'm like five years into real craft bartending. And I made him stirred martini, a couple dashes of bitters, a little more vermouth than maybe, you know, a man like Steven Starr mm-hmm. would like. So anyway, he just kind of got in this thing. Oh, you know, me, me and me and Bobby De Niro, we like, uh, you know, shaking and martini. And a lot of my friends, we like shaking martinis and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, I kind of left that conversation a little deflated, like, well, everything I've read and all the people around me are saying, like, they have to be stirred, and you need you need the bitters and whatever. And it, I'm like, you know, if the guy who, I guess, a year or two later won, like, a Lifetime Achievement Award at James Beard and yeah. whatever else says he likes it this way, then why don't you learn, like, what they like about it and start making it that way? Not like that has to become your your standard piece, but just realize that, like, you – you're going to learn something to then take liberty. So like I do that a lot in the way that I make drinks and and really, and I don't just say this, you know, now I've said it throughout my entire, I mean, I worked in actually behind bars and as servers and restaurants or whatever for, you know, 15, 16, 17 years or something like that. Uh, 18 years, 18 years. Um, Anyway. And I'm, I've always really, really believed that you give the guests what they want, not just like, because you're sort of, uh, beholden to, but because that's what you're there for is to show people a good time and make something special for them. And I don't know, uh, again, that's not one piece of advice, but it really illustrated a point from a very important person, which was like, um, you know, the you learn the rules, do that thing, but ultimately make something that people really like. And it goes a lot further.
0: Hey, I, I love it. And I, I think that's so important. Um, you know, you mentioning that there, I am not per se, a shaken martini drinker myself, but I don't know that I've ever made a shaken martini at home. So why am I, I'm thinking if Bob De Niro's doing it, I'm going to, I'm going to do that tonight, but you know what? I'm going to try and make a good one and, and and I'm going to, or I'm going to see, like you say, why that's maybe not something you should be doing. So yeah, I like it. That's, that's inspired me for this evening. Um, Penultimate question. Now we're heading into if you could only visit one last bar in your life,
1: What would it be? Okay. So that would be, there would be two. I think um, Boatis Bar in Barcelona is one of my favorite bars of all time. I've never had a bad cocktail. Are you familiar with it? I'm not familiar with it. Okay. Because it's now, it's having a a bit of a moment now, too. It just won, uh, what is it, like Legend of the List or something? And one of those like 50 best uh, last year or something like that. But uh, yeah, some uh, Julio Cabrera, who's kind of a legendary Miami bartender, Cuban bartender. I went on my honeymoon to to London and, and Barcelona and um, he highly recommended the bar and it's on Las Ramblas, which is kind of like, uh, you know, kind of a touristy or not, you know, it's kind of like Ocean Drive in Miami. It doesn't have a reputation for having like the best stuff. Um, and you go in, it's been open since, I don't know, 20s or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's a lot of older guys wearing kind of beat up tuxedos and they throw, everything rather than stir it. And you get like a little bowl of like, you know, crappy snack mix and you get a little like bright red cherry in your cocktail. But it's just it to me, it was like the missing link of the two kinds of bars I love the most, like a dive bar and a great cocktail bar. And they can make every great classic cocktail and they make it with again, like, you know, they basically kept the throwing um, technique alive when when it was kind of forgotten around the world. Um, And so they throw all of their sort of traditionally stirred drinks and they do it maybe they jigger. I really don't think they jigger anything. Wow! And they get the perfect wash line every time. It just shows like they've just been making cocktails for a very long time. And um, yeah, I, I, I was, I was in Barcelona for six days. I went there or for six nights and I went there all six nights to have at least one cocktail. So.
0: Wow. And that, so that was one of two.
1: Oh, second one is the GNS Lounge in Austin, Texas, where I'm from. And the GNS Lounge is just like to me the ultimate dive bar. It's like video games, pool tables, free popcorn, uh, good jukebox of like, you know, Texas Texas, Texas like classics. South Austin music. Um, and like surly bartender who used to walk me home from school and stuff like that. And he's he's the he owns the bill. His dad bought the building many years ago. He basically like has been the only bartender and proprietor of that bar for, you know, again, I don't know, my my entire life. So
0: that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. Love a great dive bar myself here. Haven't visited that one yet. We'll need to add it for the list next time I'm in Austin. Who knows when that will be. Um, gee. Final question for you today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make?
1: Well, again like I said, my favorite cocktail is a Manhattan. And if I was at that, uh, was I, it was it my last bar of my life and maybe it was my last cocktail. I would say that the Boatis Manhattan would be a perfect way to close the show. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I guess we can close the show that way. I, w- I would say a, a, a beautiful Manhattan made by, uh, made in a way that was just perfect would be my last cocktail.
0: Wonderful. A nice way to go out. Um, I ask that question every single week, and I'm starting to feel like now, I hope I do get that opportunity to go out with a drink in hand, who knows?
1: It would be, I mean, we could only be so lucky, right?
0: <laughs> well,
1: thanks again so much for
0: joining us today. Um, I, I, I got to go and try out this, this shaking technique, it's, it's wonderful, it's, it's standing out in my head right now, um, here's hoping I can afford the limes.
1: Yeah, get out quickly, get those limes and enjoy a shotgun shaking caipirinha yeah. <laughs> on me thank you very much and,
0: um, yeah, thanks again for joining us no, thank you Tim, it's been a lot of fun, appreciate it awesome okay, that was a lot of info but here's the good news every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript so you can check it out there all over again also if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, Vine Pairs Tastings Director and All Round Podcast Guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at Vinepair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.